Welcome to this Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Noah Gallagher-Shannon. Noah, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. And uh, I'm, I contacted you because I read an article. Actually, a whole bunch of listeners and friends sent me your article, which was a long article in the New York Times, uh, New York Times Magazine, I guess. And maybe last month, it was a, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. about Uruguay. Have I, have I said that right? I've, I don't know yeah. if I said that out loud, Uruguay, mm-hmm. and how they are making a transition to a more sustainable power grid and, and lifestyle. And so I contacted you and I said, can we talk about that article? And you said, yeah. And then now before we get to talking about that article, I've mm-hmm. since scheduling this call, I've read a whole bunch of your other stuff. So first I'm going to read your bio, which is very short, <laughs> and then uh, ask you a bit about before we get into sustainability in Uruguay. All right, so your bio says, I'm an award-winning writer based in Colorado. My journalism and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, Oxford American, and many others. I'm currently working on a book for Random House about track and field, 1970s West Texas, and a group of young athletes from East Africa who changed the sports world. Now, you've, you've written about skateboarding, and just before we started, I've heard that you skateboard, and uh-huh. uh, you, you're writing about distance running. Mm-hmm. You've written about storm tracking. Mm-hmm. written about the Sand Creek Massacre, which I'm in the middle of reading now. And I have to say that article is, um, I'll put links to these articles in the, in the, um, in the text. That one, well, I was going to say start with that one because it's really hitting, it's a pretty powerful article and I'm only partway through it. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you pick what you write about? I was, I mean, I think the skateboarding and the being in Colorado seems to be a connection maybe extreme things. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Short answer would be, I don't know, I guess, until it grabs me. Um, Looking at it from 40,000 feet now, as you say it, um, what connects them? I mean, skating, I grew up skating. Um, I'm still a skateboarder. I've written about distance running. I'm currently writing a book that's about distance running. Um, I grew up as a distance runner and ran in high school and college. I've written about climate change or and about its various effects on people, about communities that have lost their groundwater, um, about uh, corporate private security in the age of climate change. I've written about storms, as you mentioned. I've written about cinematography. I mean, I'm kind of all over the map. Um, gratefully, I've had uh, editors and magazines that are willing to, I guess, um, let me write about all these different obsessions and curiosities do you start with do you send them a proposal for do you have an idea and then send a proposal and then work with them on it or do you write the whole thing first um it's kind of a mix of all of the above um editors who i have long-standing relationships with you know we'll chat on the phone or we'll shoot emails back and forth about what we're interested in or what's currently dominating my brain sometimes editors will bring things to me that they think i'd be interested in it's kind of a mix of all of the above. A lot of my environmental reporting, climate change reporting, I guess, just comes out of my own background. I grew up in Colorado, in uh, northern Colorado, in pretty rural environment. Grew up around science. Everyone in my family, except for me, is in medicine. So I grew up in a, a household that was kind of constantly talking about science, talking about medicine, talking about healthcare. Um, My mom worked with large animals and with livestock, and we lived on a kind of hobby ranch of a kind. So I grew up around 
animals and the environment and natural resources, grew up around farmers. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin, which has a great uh, tradition of environmentalism with people like Aldo Leopold and John Muir and William Cronin, who are these kind of thinkers you end up absorbing as freshmen at the University of Wisconsin. So I guess that's kind of what I was steeped in. And then once I started working in journalism, working in magazine writing, I guess I just kind of naturally drifted back towards those things. Also, I think just as uh, someone in their mid thirties, who's kind of grown up alongside the end of nature in a sense, um, it was just the kind of story that was animating so many other stories around me. So it drew my attention, I guess. It feels like when you're in your writing that you have, you might, I, th- I think all writers try to do this, but you, you seem to have a sensitivity of, of putting yourself in the mindset of the person, or in some cases of, of the people you're writing about. Mm. That, um, and adopting, it, they kind of have the, each one has the tone of that, like the skateboarding stuff has the tone of the skateboarders, it feels like to me. And <laughs> uh, it, it's a different tone than the Uruguayan article. Do you, I, I feel like there's some immersion there. And, and I have to say that what really got me of your piece was something that most other stuff on the environment doesn't get. And the word imagination showed up a few times in this piece. And lately, over the past couple months, and I've been at this about 10 years, I've identified our environmental issues as, I'm, as a failure of imagination. People mm. are, and especially since I've been going off the grid, here at home is that I could not have imagined doing what I'm doing, but now that I'm doing it, it's, it's fun. Yeah. And it's not hardship. So I rarely see that most people it's about um, the price of, of renewables dropping. And I don't really like using the term renewables because they pollute so much, or it's about how nuclear works, or it's about how carbon dioxide traps heat or something like that, or what are we going to do with the COP 27, but not about, how do we figure out how we're going to, how, how we're going to do this? And not just some people might ask, ask that abstract question, but you're answering it. You're finding, I, I, is that what got you writing this article was to, to find out answers to that question for yourself or others, for the country, the world. Yeah. I mean, I think I try with each piece to get inside the characters that I'm writing about. And I think uh, oftentimes the stories that I write, it's because I'm, interested in the characters um, or I'm interested in the characters and the stories that might be kind of lurking behind or underneath the numbers. Um, I wrote about a community in Southern Arizona that was losing its groundwater. And that story really came out of seeing a statistic somewhere, a kind of climate change statistic about groundwater wells going dry. You know, it said five out of you know, 15 groundwater wells in this area are going dry. And I thought to myself, like, well, one groundwater well going dry, like, what does that do to a family? What does it do to their ability to cook and to bathe? And how does it disrupt the value of their home? And how does it uh, affect their neighbors? And I just got really curious about the stories and the lives behind that. And to your question about kind of uh, the language of the pieces taking on the communities. It's reporting about, um, 
It's really cool to hear that that's the case. I mean, I think that's what I'm striving after is to uh, immerse myself and try to do something that feels true to the people that are in the story. And I have such a love of language and um, local dialect and um, how people tell stories that, you know, you go to Southern Arizona and you hear old farmers or ranchers talk a certain way and it just kind of seeps naturally into the way you do things. I know people in my life often, oftentimes make fun of me for like picking up the vernacular of other people when I'm hanging out around them. Um, so I think it's just a kind of thing I'm porous to, I guess. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just thinking yeah. about like, there's a guy in the skate, one of the skate skating articles about it's like this guy, a guy Taylor, I guess really likes to go fast. Yeah. Grant Taylor, great skateboarder. And then you introduce this other guy and you're like three DOAs from heroin i'm like doa yeah jeff grasso yeah. who is um now no longer with us uh from heroin i don't um i don't know what the cause of death there was but he died a few years ago was a skateboarding great a legend mm. and uh i hope i didn't sound too serious there it, it was it, was, <laughs> it seemed playful in the article or, or like mm. this is i mean it, it, a 50 year old skateboarder who yeah i felt like i don't know the guy but it was really short pithy here's the guy Mm -hmm. so when you were talking about that it made me think of that that one particular case yeah i mean i think when you go into different communities particularly as a, a journalist you're just you're just trying to listen and absorb and see who these people are and kind of approach them on their level and so it seems I guess just kind of obvious or natural to me to then try to write about them in the same way um, that the community thinks about them or that um, their own group of friends thinks about them. Um, So that's often what I'm trying to do when I'm reporting is not just kind of get the story, but get how the story is thought of among that person's peers or um, how the story is talked about, what language the story is talked about among uh, that person's friends and family. So, I mean, I got a leg up in, in the skateboarding one because I've grown up in that group of people. I mean, I know the lingo and know how people talk and um, know how people think about the culture and about different skaters like Grant. So in that case, that that was pretty fun and um, I guess pretty easy uh, relative to other things I've written. All right. So let's go back. I interrupted. So let's go back to um, Arizona. Yeah. If one goes dry, you're thinking about those families and I'm reading, you're also thinking about your own life. Mm-hmm. So how does that lead to, I, so that that's leading to Uruguay. So can you, yeah. do you mind sharing how that experience in, in uh, the statistic in Arizona and writing about that piece, how that led to you, how, how, how long between the Arizona piece and the Uruguay piece and what changed in your life in that time? Yeah, I don't know, five years, maybe. Um, what changed in my life? Uh, I lived in New York for a decade or so, and then recently moved to Colorado um, about a year ago now, back to the area that I grew up in. Um, so that's probably the most significant change um, in terms of Uruguay and how I wound up writing about it. I think it was a question of imagination. As you said, um, I'd written a lot about the effects 
of climate change. And most of the stories that I've written in the last number of years are about climate change, I guess, in the sense that climate change is the kind of background animating antagonist in the story or the force that is um, pushing people into these extreme places. Um, but I had never really written about that other side of climate change, right? The, the climate action question, the conversations around sustainability, around um, energy, around climate change policy. Um, in many ways, it, uh, it was something I didn't know anything about. I mean, climate change is such an enormous, amorphous issue that I feel like, on the one hand, I can have written about uh, storms and water systems and private security in the age of climate change. And then once I get to the subject of climate action, I'm like, I don't know. And one of the kind of strange and unexpected side effects of writing about climate change, even if you are writing about the effects of it, even if you're writing about natural disasters, even if you're writing about um, the people that are being affected by climate change in the present tense is that your friends and family and sometimes editors at magazines will ask you questions like, well, what do we do? Or do we have hope? Or these other enormous questions that I have no answers to. Um, and so this piece, I guess, was partly, partly came out of a desire in myself to work through some of those questions and also just kind of like interrogate or think about the ways in which they were being asked. And I felt like there was this kind of discussion or disagreement um, largely within the left about attacking the problem through big systemic action, like decarbonizing large swaths of the economy and holding corporate polluters responsible. And then there was this other side of the debate, which was taking small personal actions and personal responsibility, like driving less or recycling or whatever it might be. Um, and oftentimes it felt like these two debates were people made them out to be mutually exclusive, right? Like um, if you focus too much on personal responsibility, then you were taking the focus away from uh, worldwide systemic action. And it struck me like that couldn't possibly be true. And the whole time that I'm thinking about these things, I'm also thinking from my own perspective and from the perspective of friends and families who are asking me like, well, should I do X? Should I do Y? Like what's actually the biggest kind of net way that I can shrink my carbon footprint? And I just didn't know. Um, and maybe I still don't know even after uh, writing a piece like this, but I think my goal was, was to at least kind of widen um, the questions that we were asking and, and widen it from the perspective of imagination. Because for me, as someone, again, writing a lot about the effects of climate change, it felt at times like the studies and the models that were telling me what the world was going to look like in 100 years if we did nothing, those had really vividly rendered the future for me in a way that had maybe eclipsed my ability to see how I might make it better or how any of us might make it better or how any policies were going to make it better. And so, yeah, it, I mean, in my first 
drafts and first notes in thinking about this story, it was a lot about um, imagination and just kind of like how I could imagine my own life, how I could imagine the American life. Um, and it really proceeded from there. I'm really, yeah, the, this idea of focusing on, we can do things and people just, they're constantly saying how they can't. Right. And how, even if they, whatever they do, it won't matter. Hmm. And yet we, I mean, we learn about Martin Luther King and we learn about uh, Abraham Lincoln and people who made a difference. And yet when it comes to our environment, the defensiveness that is here and they don't try to imagine they, they just like, well, it won't work. Right. And they just love to talk about how BP had this campaign for you to look at your personal carbon footprint. And somehow they think if I look at my carbon footprint or I look at my pollution, somehow that makes it impossible for me to look at BPs anymore. Right. Which is like, and how am I supposed to learn what to do if I don't try? Right. And I mean, I, I was having mentioned Abraham Lincoln. I came across a recent quote of his. I'm not going to be able to say it perfectly, but it's um, the worst thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Right. Uh, of course, he saw that all over the place leading up to the Civil War and that people were doing stuff that they knew was wrong. And what you have to do to defend your psyche from the, uh, the, the twisting up inside that's going to happen when you have the internal conflict of I'm doing this, but I know it's wrong. Right. People do whatever it takes to defend that. And yeah. so saying what I do doesn't matter is a, is a very effective way to do that. And if I yeah. say that and you say that and everyone else says that and we all agree, okay, let's all agree. We have a culture that says we're all powerless. Uh, there's nothing you can do, nothing anyone can do. Mm-hmm. Just keep doing what you're doing. Someone, there'll be some deus ex machina and we'll be fine. Right. Uh, and ultimately to me, to, it took me a while to trace to this lack of imagination failure of imagination, not to try to think of what could we do. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot because you often hear people reduce certain personal decisions to a kind of drop in the bucket, right? When you actually look at the the wedge of things that are going to bring our collective carbon footprint uh, down, you know, the big things are EVs, they're decarbonizing the grid, their efficiencies, their industrial changes. And so I think that allowed people to say like, well, if I recycle or if I have a heat pump or if I have a, if I have a carbon footprint of 25 tons, like it's just kind of a drop in the bucket. Like what actually matters is that I vote for a green new deal and that I um, put candidates in office who believe that climate change is real and have forward thinking ideas on it. It always just struck me like, well, uh, both things could be possible. You know, I can try to fly a little less and I can also vote for people that I think are going to help decarbonize the grid. I think, I think my worldview is big enough to encompass, to encompass both thoughts. And yeah, I'm going to read, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read a a paragraph. I, I pulled out a whole bunch of stuff. So one relevant to what we were talking about, if you don't mind my reading, mm. uh, it says, this is the problem with any climate policy, big or small. It requires an imaginative leap. While the math of decarbonization and electric mobilization is clear, the future lifestyle it implies isn't, isn't always. Right-wing commenters sometimes seize upon this fact to caricature any climate policy as a forced retreat from modernity, Americans forced to live in ecopods. 
While on the left, any accounting seems to cloud the urgency of the moment. A majority of emissions come from just 100 or so corporations, activists argue. A concentration of industrial production that once decarbonized could slash the footprint beneath every wall sconce and sandwich. Even if it were true, these arguments conveniently ignore the one uncomfortable fact. Walmart, ExxonMobil, and Berkshire Hathaway didn't burn that fuel on their own. We paid them to or burned it ourselves because the way we live our li- because the way we live depends on it. This seemed to cut to the heart. I mean, there are many things that cut to different hearts of things. Exxon doesn't buy its own products. Right. We do. Yeah, I mean, that that paragraph was um I don't know, difficult to write, a mouthful, obviously, as you um, just read aloud. But I think it it got to the heart of a lot of the questions I was trying to ask myself as I was moving across the country into a new home and was trying to uh, think about the ways that I could maybe live a little sustain more sustainably or the ways that I could cut my own carbon footprint or if carbon footprint even mattered at all. And if I should actually be putting my money and time into um, these larger systemic actions or movements. Um, I just found the whole thing so confounding and I didn't know where to look or where to place my attention. And so I think that paragraph was in part, um, you know, my trying to outline that, confusion because we're told a lot of different things and it kind of shifts depending on the person you listen to or the year or the month that these things are being discussed. Um, Because of course we see models for a lot of different things every day, you know, models by which we get to net zero in 2030 or 2050 models by which we don't. Um, But I think the larger and kind of animating question beneath all of that is uh, we don't know exactly what the future was going to look like. And we're all trying to imagine it in these different ways. Um, And yeah, I just, I guess I just wanted to write about that process, um, kind of make, make my thinking visible there on the page. Did you also want to create role models? Because most people, Hmm. I ask a lot of people, do you know anyone who's living sustainably? And I'll give you Greta because everyone says Greta. Hmm. And I don't think once or twice I'll have someone talk about like an uncle who lives off in the woods. But yeah, that's not that person is rarely a role model. They're certainly not presenting themselves as a role model. And so mm-hmm. people and you know, the next paragraph I have from you, I'm going to read the next paragraph. That's OK. OK. This is the paradox at the heart of, of climate change. We've burned too many fossil fuels to go on living as we have. We've also never learned to live well without them. As the Yale economist Robert Mendelssohn puts it, the problem of the future is how to create a 19th century carbon footprint without backsliding into a 19th century standard of living. How do we begin to imagine such a household? And actually, I got to share one of the things that, that I, I, I happened to read, I didn't plan it this way, but I read the morning of when I started this experiment of unplugging from the uh, electric grid. Mm-hmm. Do you know Sebastian Younger's book, uh, Tribe? Uh, no, I know his work and I'm an admirer of it, but I haven't read that. So the, the book, one of the main things it talks about is how people who have experienced our culture and who have experienced other cultures. So one big example he talks about is, is Native Americans prior to America, before the United States. Mm-hmm. So when it was colonial America. 
people who, colonists who lived among the Indians would sometimes stay. But I believe there's no known case of an Indian who lived among the colonists or went to Europe and stayed. There's a one-way <laughs> flow. Right. And we, and he also talked a lot about a lot of other cases of, of in war or in natural disaster or man-made disaster, when society breaks down and people start, they lose their roles, their, um, the, the, the prescribed status and roles, and they just are people. Mm-hmm. And it's more like being, as he puts it, more like it was before, then people like that. And to the point where people would rather go return to war situations if it means if that's what it takes to get the the mutual support and mutual understanding that our isolate that our world is increasingly isolates hmm. that people would rather get shot at if that's <laughs> if they can get that that then stay here right yeah i don't i don't know what to make of that that's pretty incredible i mean i I guess I have, I've certainly harbored fantasies at certain times of, you know, dropping out, leaving society, uh, doing things in a simpler way, consolidating my life in some sense um, towards what matters. If I could put my finger on exactly what matters, I guess, depending on the time or um, where I am. Do I think about role models in the midst of, I don't think so. I mean, in the case of this article, I was curious about the people who had played a big role in helping Uruguay transition so rapidly to green energy. At the same time, I was also really interested in kind of the Uruguayan national character, if if such a thing exists, um, and in what, what maybe allowed that transition to happen so quickly and so seamlessly um and what i don't know how different communities had reacted within the country and so uh this was a bit of a different kind of story for me to write because usually i'm interested in a character interested in a particular scientist and then kind of use that as a way into the story and here was a country where the country interested me based on some of its metrics and based on this um, energy revolution that I'd read about. And then once I got there, there was kind of this open-ended question of like, all right, well, how do I explore it or how do I get a sense of what's going on? So I just tried as I usually do to interview as many people and spend as much time as I could with as many different kinds of people. So rich economists and people working in the cattle industry and people living in the slums and politicians and energy experts and um, basically anybody that I could kind of bump into and talk to on the street. Uh, I mean, there was a kind of, I think it was kind of odd for people (laughs) at times that I was interviewing because you know, most people are maybe used to talking to a journalist or at least familiar with how it might go. And here I was asking them like, so what is your life like? Uh, What do you do? Like, take me through a a day in the life of uh, how much money you spend and how many things you use and how do you evaluate questions of what you want to buy versus what money you might want to save. And 
what do you do when you spend time with your friends? How do you enjoy yourself? And what kind of things do you value? I mean, a lot of people found it pretty uh, perplexing, I guess, at first. And then as we got maybe more far along, they, they kind of understood that I was, you know, the alien American curious about what was going on in their country. But in terms of role models, uh, no, I, I mean, maybe those people kind of naturally emerged as I got more interested in what they had to say or what their lifestyle had to say about being Uruguayan. But um, I don't think I had people in mind when I set out to travel to the country. Oh, I thought I was thinking, did you think here's a role model nation that we can present that you could help bring to the rest of the world? Because I didn't know mm. about Uruguay before this. Yeah, sure. And actually, let's let's get some context. Can you give an, how did you find out about them? And what <laughs> when you went there, what, what, what did you learn about them that drove you to go there? Yeah. Um, how did I pick them? I mean, it's arbitrary in in some sense. Right. Part of the project of this piece is just trying to think through the possibilities of the future in a wider way. Um, and so as a result, I was looking for something that was off the beaten path a little bit. Um, I mean, I think most of us that have read about climate change a lot or cared about it have kind of read about the Northern social democracies, the Scandinavian countries. But I felt in some way like there was this kind of sleek technocratic air to them that didn't necessarily lend themselves towards being models for everyone moving forward. I mean, I think one thing that's maybe maybe not ignored, but I was confused about is the world's probably going to look a number of different ways, right? Like not every country is going to be able to look like Denmark moving forward. Um, and so there's got to be a lot of different models for the way things are going to look in the future. And I was, I was particularly curious, I guess, to look at developing countries because I think oftentimes in America, we just kind of ignore some of what's going on in developing countries or, or we tend not to think about them for models of, um, progress, but at least in terms of climate change, you know, I think that there are a lot of lessons of resiliency that we can take from developing countries. I mean, things like power outages or uh, just using less power. I mean, those are just kind of, that's just the way of the world in a lot of developing countries and a lot of countries that are in America or Western Europe. Um, and those are things that might happen a lot more often in the future. Um, so I was thinking from the perspective of resiliency, I was thinking from the perspective of, you know, what are some countries or some models or examples that we haven't pulled from just yet? Um, and a big one for me was that I just had never really thought about Uruguay as a climate leader. I mean, to be totally frank, I don't think I've thought about Uruguay at all. <laughs> I, I confess. You know, I remember that. my initial conversations with my editor where we were both kind of like, uh, this is fascinating because it's a little bit of a blank slate, both both for me as a reporter and for a lot of the readership around um, this country's history and um, some of its national psychology. 
um, like it'll just be fun, interesting to explore. Yeah. So much of what you say resonates and, and talk about, I'll, I'll use the language you used and, and sure. none of the language really works quite right, but uh, developing nations to, to say you would, didn't really think of them as, as leaders, nor had I, but we could use a lot more humility over here. Sure. Now I think of when, when they talk about nations that have all this technology and say, and, and when people suggest that we should be on the lead because we have Silicon Valley and all this stuff to me, now that I read our, I, I see us as addicted to what fossil fuels bring and, sure. and pollution brings. And to say that the person who is the most addicted is the one who's going to have the easiest time quitting <laughs> doesn't make sense at all. Right. The people who are addicted least are the ones who, the ones who are addicted the most can, can decrease the most, but they've made a lifestyle where it's going to be the hardest for them. Right. Well, we have the most amount to lose. Yeah. And we're so, we're the most bought into it. Mm-hmm. We, I, I, I'm not sure if you meant materially or also spiritually and psychically that we, we just. No, I think all of the above. Yeah. We, we are so caught up in it and we think that more, I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, what like, I haven't flown since 2016. Wow. People tell me one of the big reasons that they fly is they want to explore other cultures. Now that I haven't flown for a long time, and people talk about visiting someplace. It sounds like they're going to the zoo. And it's just like they drop in. They're not really experiencing the culture. Even if they're there for a month or so, that's not, that's not enough time to really explore it. And most of the time, it's for a few days. Right. And, but unplug your fridge and only eating local vegetables. And suddenly, you explore culture that's like your immediate culture. Yeah. And especially in the winter in, in New York, shopping in the farmer's market, beets, carrots, uh, you know, the greens aren't there anymore. I mean, they'll be there through January, but like February, March, even into April, it's turnips and radishes. And I got to make those taste good. And suddenly right. I start having to learn what people do everywhere around the world for food, but I'm actually doing it. And it's put me much more in touch. Yeah, I was really struck when we were talking um, offline before this um, about how, of course, because you're not plugged into the grid, your dietary choices, your dinner choice are being guided by what seasonal stuff is available and by the actual um, region in which you live and the fresh produce or meat and fish that you can get in that area. Um, I was uh, at the beginning of this year, I spent, a month and a half in Tanzania as, as part of the the book reporting that I'm doing. And one thing I found really interesting, just as a a kind of reflection of my American life was moving through different areas of Tanzania and how, what we were eating for dinner, what we were eating from breakfast was actually changing according to what region. And of course that, that goes on on some level. And when you're traveling in the United States, you know, you have different cuisine um, from different places, but uh, it, it's not a matter. It's not usually a matter of like, Oh, you actually can't get this fruit or you actually can't get this vegetable or you actually can't eat this variety of fish. I mean, you can probably seek it out if you want it somewhere in America, but I was just struck by that. You know, it's those little things when you're, when you're traveling in places that have a little bit less 
infrastructure, a little bit less of the infrastructure that we've come to rely on of like, oh, of course, when you take an eight or 10 hour bus ride away, your food is going to be different. Um, and I just thought that that was a, an interesting little wrinkle to what uh, has been going on with your own experiment or exercise or whatever you're calling it. Experiment. Yeah. 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 We have, the more I cook myself, the more that when I go, oh man, restaurants, my ex-girlfriend, she was like, I don't want to go to restaurants with you. All you do is complain. <laughs> it's like, it's because if it's just salt, sugar, fat, it's like they take some cuisine and then they add salt, sugar, fat, and it's no longer that cuisine. And not that it has to be authentic to be delicious or, but right. it's, and then they put on some better rice or pasta that I don't, I want vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I think people feel like if I don't, if I can't have a choice between French and Spanish and Japanese and Senegalese and whatever different, all these options, I'm, I'm deprived. Right. And I think that people feel like if they don't, they see not having all these options as, as deprivation. Right. And that's back to this failure of imagination that it's, it's also, it, it reads to me as entitled and I'm sure everyone grew up with knowing friends and when you're in school who are spoiled and they maybe didn't know that they were spoiled and maybe being told no from their perspective, probably being told no would be a cause for a tantrum, but probably if everyone else could tell, it would probably help them to not get anything they wanted every time they wanted. Right. You know, no matter what. There's also, I mean, to your comment about deprivation, um, it's like anytime you have a friend or a family member that goes to Europe and comes back and is like, Oh, I'm only eating Mediterranean from now on. I feel so much better. The food's so delicious. And then of course, you know, whatever a week or month later, their diet is back to what's um, convenient and what, uh, what's kind of socially okay, or what's delicious and right in front of you when you want it. Um, so it's like, we kind of know these things in the back of our, our mind, like, when I was in Tanzania and uh, we just had access to a little less food, but we did have access to fresh stuff that was local produce and local caught fish. It's not like I was really uh, craving American food on, on any level, you know, you, you get used to what you have in front of you pretty quickly. And I think that's one thing I also took away from Uruguayans because as an American of course, I'm asking questions about like, well, how does it feel to, you know, not be able to buy a new couch when you want to, like I am, if I have the money? Or how does it feel to have gas be, you know, seven or eight dollars a gallon and you have to uh, group your errands and shop a little more frugally? Or how does it feel to, you know, do whatever it might be. And, and of course they're looking at me like, well, this is just the way it is. Like um, I was really struck by one dairy farmer I talked to who was just like, well, it's like this for everybody. So how could I be frustrated? Um, when I think I was then projecting that onto a kind of American character and, and could see the same dairy farmer getting mad at politicians for having the price of gas be so high or for having the price of goods be so high. Cause in Uruguay, there's really high taxes and really high um, duties levied on a lot of goods um, because they don't make a lot of things in the country itself. 
but yeah, this mentality where the, where this guy was like, well, whatever. It's like this for everybody, man. So you know, like, what am I, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm just going to live my life within the parameters uh, that I can and like seek the happiness where, where I can and save money where I can and whatever. And, you know, as an American reporter, you're like, okay, but why aren't you frustrated or aren't you? And I think sometimes they were like, no, I don't understand why you keep asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Like, this is just the way it is, man. Yeah. It feels like a case where if, if we look at them and evaluate them by our values, Mm -hmm. then we say that looks like a fate worse than death. Especially, and even and I'm sure it is for a lot of the, people, the Tanzanians. And, but if, when, what I got from Younger's book was that we, if you actually spend enough time there to be there long mm-hmm. enough and know that culture, so you evaluate it by its own values, I predict that most people would, would want to stay there and not so many Uruguayans would want to stay here. Mm-hmm. But we can't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that it's, totally true um i mean i i not to refute younger and and his kind of uh one directional movement of people from um one society to another but uh i, I feel like if you asked some people at, at least the poorest people in those places they would probably opt for the american lifestyle um i mean when you talk to people that are a bit more well-off or sort of middle-class by Uruguayan standards. I think they just, they find America's materialism kind of curious and gross. Uh, The people I talked to who had been to the United States didn't uh, necessarily praise it. They just thought that there was the abundant, like the sheer abundance they thought was shocking. You know, I talked to uh, one guy in his thirties with a family who had taken a few trips to the United States and, and was just shocked by, you know, the um, sheer variety of choices for junk food or at the kinds of furniture that we left out on the street because we were done with it and wanted to move on. Um, as a funny aside to that, I remember living in New York and buying some furniture from a guy, I think in the Lower East Side or somewhere. And he was just like, yeah, it's time for me to buy all new furniture. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, and at the time it didn't strike me as totally weird. I was just like, yeah, I hear you, man. Um, but, you know, coming from uh, this perspective, you might just be like, what? Like all new furniture. And, and some of that is just the the convenience of being able to like pull up Ikea on your phone and, you know, order a whole room, you know, of couch and shelves and lights and whatever. And um, it just, the convenience of that at your fingertips is is probably what allows people to do it. Cause I mean, I don't know, I do it myself sometimes. It's so wonderful stuff that it'll be in a landfill in six months. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then that's how much we love it. You know, you get in this feedback loop of uh, you want the thing, but then you kind of feel half terrible about yourself and then you end up not using the thing. And when you throw it away, then you feel doubly terrible. Um, and then you do it again. Yeah, you said you do it again, meaning one does it again. But and me, it's like no, I mean, I per- yeah, I personally do it again. It sounds like you are not doing things like this, but uh, I'm I'm not the most consistent when it comes 
when it comes to avoiding consumerism or it comes to um, figuring out the best ways to cut my carbon footprint. I mean, this, this article in, in some sense was me beginning to explore these things rather than me uh, offering a kind of argumentative uh, picture of how things ought to be. Yeah. This morning um, I had a meeting and a guy picked me up from the train station and, and he knew that I'd gone bike camping for the first time in, in decades. Hmm. And the day before I went, he said, I forget exactly how he said it, but he was like, you got a rope to, to hang the food up. Right. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, rookie mistake. Like you don't put the food in your tent with you. You're supposed to <laughs> throw a rope over, over branch. that's at least 20 feet high and pull it up right. for bears. Yeah. And Okay. So what did that do? So I, 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 at least I knew not to put the food in my tent, but <laughs> I didn't have a rope with me. So I just, you know, left it by the bike, you know, 20 yards from the tent. And that night, every thing I heard was like, that's gotta be a bear. That must be a bear. It's going to get me. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I picked me up this morning, he brought a rope and he's like, for the next time you go, here's some rope. And I was like, I, I, now when someone hands me something as a gift, it's like, ah, oh, how do I, I have to not take it and express that the sentiment means everything. And, but the right. physical thing I don't want, I'd rather like for my birthday, I'd rather people took stuff from me, not gave me things. Yeah. And I think if I'd heard someone say these words a year ago or two years ago, I would have thought, ah, like people that when I would hear people talk about the difference between local tomatoes versus shipped in from California tomatoes, I was like, <laughs> come on, it's just a tomato. You're like this is annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Like get off your high horse. And now, now that I sense the difference, it's, it's a huge difference. And I don't know if I sound like a pompous ass. I mean, I am one, but no, no, you bring up a good point because that's a really hard social thing to navigate, particularly in our culture in which like the giving of physical gifts is so important, you know, to friends and family. I mean, I, I grew up in a family that didn't really care about holidays. Uh, holidays were often an excuse for my family to go travel somewhere or go backpacking somewhere. And so I just never really grew up around Christmas culture. And as a result of that, um, I'm just not really into Christmas as a holiday. The like giving and receiving of stuff still makes me kind of uh, a little squeamish. Um, it also probably has to do with like, I feel like the particular brand of like liberal politics of my parents uh, had a lot of anti-materialism in it. Um, and now of course, materialism is kind of understood in different ways uh, as self-care or as uh, something else. Um but anyway, as a result, my wife and I just kind of don't celebrate Christmas. And it's oftentimes a kind of hard thing to communicate to our friends or loved ones that like, we just don't really need anything. Like I'm kind of good. I'm all set mm -hmm. at this point on like the stuff, you know, every once in a while, there's maybe there's something um, that would be helpful for us, you know, particularly because we just got a house and are trying to get this place um, more comfortable and improve it. But uh, yeah, it's like a tricky social dynamic because you don't want to be ungrateful for someone having put the thought into buying you something. But at the same time, I just kind of rather that energy get pushed in a or placed in a different direction. 
And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel you when you're talking about like how to politely decline a gift. Cause I'm, I'm still like kind of learning how to navigate that same dynamic and maybe haven't figured out the best way to do it. So it's, well, if, if you do come up with the best way, let me know. Cause it's challenging. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I raised that, that instance partly because, all right. So um, when he handed me the rope, I recoiled involuntarily. It was like, I don't want, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm tempted. I really want it, but now I don't. Same thing with, I, you know, most of my life I had ice cream in the freezer and I had, uh, it was Snyder's of Hanover pretzel bits. Mm. I really like when I finished a bag, it was time to get another bag. And I had to okay. make rules for myself to how much to eat. Cause I would otherwise eat a lot and Doritos I really loved. Mm. And now there's not, there's not enough money in the world to get me to eat a spoon of Ben and Jerry's really as much as I loved it before. So there aren't things like that that you, that you miss. You know, when I stopped eating meat, all the, I, I went into order of like stop eating meat. And then a few years later, uh, hydrogenated oils. And then a few years later, mm. it was uh, um, uh, corn syrup. And then a few years later, it was other things. And in, it was always, I liked meat growing up. I really loved pepperoni pizza and beef with broccoli. And, and I grew up in Philadelphia. So cheesesteaks was just normal. That's like- yeah. I, I really loved, I, I would always want cheesesteaks. Like if the, if the question was, do you want cheesesteak? The answer is yes. Yeah. And what would happen is I would, it was most stark, I think with hydrogenated oils, because I learned that uh, trans fats were like not as bad as saturated, but not, but worse than, than unsaturated. Right. And I don't know where I got that idea from, but then eventually I learned, no, it's worse than both. And it's more profitable with the shelf life and things like that. And you can't accidentally bubble hydrogen through oil. It's like, it's a deliberate thing. Mm -hmm. What happened, but I would look at the aisles. Actually, when I stopped eating trans fats, I thought it was a couple items. And it Mm. turns out it's a whole aisles of the supermarket. Right. I was surprised at that. But what changed it was that I couldn't, I felt like they're bubbling hydrogen and telling me that it's making it more healthy and it's not. And as much as I anticipated the joy, the, the pleasure that I got from putting those things in my mouth and chewing on them, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do business with them. And so at some point, this little click goes on inside my head that says the days of that stuff is numbered. And I know that like something happens that I stop getting pleasure out of it anymore. And then at one point, I'm just like, that was the last hydrogenated oil product I'm ever going to eat. Mm. And I, I've never stopped eating something that I wanted to eat more of. In fact, I can remember there was an event at NYU where there was free pizza and I hadn't had cheese in a long, long time. And I lived in Paris for a year. So I, you know, I really love cheese. Right. And I took a couple of bites of this pizza and I was like, this isn't worth it anymore. <laughs> and I, I just never, I, you could give, put some really fancy French cheese in front of me or Italian or whatever. I, I just wouldn't, it's not appealing anymore. It's, it's same with meat. It's like, I mean, that's a long time ago. That was 1990. But yeah, if you put meat or fish in front of me, to me, it's like putting cockroach in front of me. I'm, it's edible. Someone somewhere eats it. Not appealing to me. And so flying, I thought when I gave it up, I thought that this is guaranteed. I didn't give it up. I, I said, I'm going to go for one year without flying. And within a couple of months, I was getting more adventure, 
more interaction with family, more control of my career. And I said, let's go for another year. And then eventually I, I'm not missing it anymore. It, it's like, yeah, I went through withdrawal and now I'm not addicted anymore. It's, it's funny how your, your brain will just get rewired for things like that. Um, I'm a vegetarian as well and have been since I was pretty young and you know, people always joke with me, particularly when you live in a, a place with a strong farming and ranching culture, you know, about craving bacon or craving a steak. And, you know, every once in a while for a a friend's thing, or if I'm, you know, in Uruguay or if I'm in Tanzania and people have made me a meat dinner, um, I'll graciously accept it. But by and large, I don't eat meat and I find that I don't crave it. And I probably, maybe I did for a little while when I first stopped eating it, but it's funny how your brain also just rewires where I don't even linger over menu items that have meat in them. My brain just kind of like erases them and (laughs) keeps it moving and like looks for other things. So it's like I've, you know, deleted, deleted uh, something out of my brain in its temptation for meat because I'll just scan over the menu items and not even register them as being interesting or uh, a potential that I'm going to order. And I guess I would guess that a similar thing would happen with other consumer items. And it sounds like it's happened for you. Um, I guess I'm surprised that you don't miss some things or you don't like at times like crave some comfort or some convenience when as you put it there i pick up litter every day that's another one of my daily habits like on the street in new york yeah all right like in 2017 i gave myself pick up at least one piece of litter per day Hmm, okay and now it's more like a couple dozen because I, I don't go out of my way. That's a total of like two seconds per day that I spend because it's just picking it up. And then, but then when the, the pandemic led to the heroin and fentanyl and meth and crack in Washington Square Park around the corner from me, hmm. I said, I'm also going to pick up there because I'm not going to retreat from there. I want to, for various, I, I want to be a part of the, like, I don't want to, I don't want it to just get taken over. Right, and I wanted to be a role model for my for people who live here, and 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 who enjoy Washington Square Park and want and have a vested interest in its in its future. Which, as far as I can tell, when you get addicted to heroin and meth, you don't care about the future, and so they would they're just wrecking it. So I, I would pick up at least three pieces in the northwest corner of the park. So now they, well, they produce a ton of waste, but also everyone else does too. Like I I, I don't see the the addiction of heroin and crack and meth and fentanyl is to me quantitatively different than the addiction to what I call doof, which is food backward, which is not <laughs> the stuff that, you know, people call ultra processed food or right. convenience food or like, and so I see when I walk on the street, I see a lower density of, of waste than right where the addicts are, but it's still there. And so that addiction is everywhere. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be addicted. And so I've developed a disgust for um, Doritos, the stuff that I see, like the stuff I see most of is like 7-Eleven, Gatorade, uh, Starbucks, Mm -hmm. McDonald's, 
Um, Modelo beer seems to be the really big beer, but there's like, I mean, it's, and coffee cups is, I mean, I don't drink coffee, but like I see someone riding a bike, carrying a cup of coffee. And I'm like, you're not getting any pleasure out of that, of, of that coffee people. And all, all the places around uh, Washington Square Park that used to, I mean, there are a few cafes, but mostly people, it's sold takeout and disposable stuff that ends up being litter often in Washington Square Park. The, the trash cans are over full every, virtually every day. Mm-hmm. So if someone offers me, would you like a cup of coffee? Even if it's in a mug, well, let's say something I have. Uh, if someone's like, want a beer? My first thought is, it's is the cans of beer that are all over the place. And ultimately this is going to end up in a whale's belly or in Ghana and, and people are acting like their contribution is negligible or isn't there. And of course it is. And I don't want to, whereas if you offer me like, would you like to go to farm and eat some stuff right out of the ground? I'm like, yes, this is one yeah. of my highlights. My CSA, I go, that, that was the bike camping trip was to, to bike, to ride up to the farm where my CSA vegetables come from. And as it turns out, I got my wish, which I love about this. One is meeting the farmers and talking to them. And they know me because I, I write in about, like talk about their cherry tomatoes, which <laughs> my joke, my joke is like, I think you mixed cherry tomatoes with heroin because this stuff is so good. <laughs> and in any case, this time there was like lettuce and they picked it, but there were a few things that they didn't pick. And I was like, can I have it? And they're like, go for it. And I was just stuffing my face with lettuce, like picked seconds before. So were you raised in this kind of environment? I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm kind of curious, like, do you have a predisposition towards being particularly um, resistant to these addictions? I mean, obviously there are factors in different people's lives that lead to their, you know, maybe addiction to processed food or to convenience store food and, you know, whole communities where they don't have access to farm to table type produce. And so as a result are eating a lot more of the processed foods. And I'm wondering, like, do you have some kind of added protection from how you were raised? Did you already have a kind of predisposition to liking and uh, going out of your way for fresh produce? Let's see. I, I can't say yeah. I mean, when I stopped, when I started avoiding packaged food, it occurred to me that I don't think I ever ate a meal with only unpackaged food in it. Hmm. So the kids growing up, we had to, every day it was a different kid's turn. Like we got home before we were latchkey kids. So there was always a note saying like, Josh, it's your turn. You have to make pasta right. or Sarah, my sister, you know, it's your turn to make uh, whatever. And, um, but it was always something packaged. My mom's from the Midwest. So her like tuna casserole was a classic thing. And it was like cans of tuna and boxes of pot of, of pasta stuff. And uh, my dad, but on the other hand, my parents, both my mom and my dad, and my mom remarried to my stepfather, they were founding members or, or helped organize food co-ops. Right. And in Philadelphia, the Weaver's Way Food Co-op is like, I think of it as like a staple of the community of, of Manary. Manary was this neighborhood that was, when it was, it was designed to be, or the neighbors deci- decided we are going to be um, uh, diverse. And so hmm. the redlining was not, you know, they worked as hard as they could against that. And now there was, but then after the divorce, when my mom lived in what 
uh, uh, just a recent guest on the podcast, he grew up right around there. He's like, this is the ghetto of the, this is the, 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 the heart of black Philadelphia is how it was described. Hmm. And in the summer there was, they gave out welfare sandwiches with the welfare beverages and up and down. There was, I remember going to the neighbor's houses and I would love their peanut butter because they got the welfare peanut butter, which was like tasted like peanut butter cups. It was like candy because it was so sweetened. Whereas my parents would only get the, the ingredients could only be peanuts and optionally sometimes salt. Right. So I would love to get, and, and they had the big blocks of the welfare cheese, which I really liked. So there was this mix of, um, and when we'd go camping, they would let us get the sugar cereals, but then we would cause I guess we were running around then, but we couldn't get the sugar cereals when we weren't camping. But also recently right. when I've gone off the grid, I've been, and this is just an experiment. I mean, I'm in my sixth month, but I didn't expect it to go very long. I learned that if I just soak grains in water overnight, like I used to get, I mean, I used to get Cheerios and then I moved to rolled oats. And I, my mom would say that steel cut oats, that was special because they take so much longer to cook. And it turns out I can just soak them in water overnight. And everyone's like overnight oats. Okay. I didn't know about that until this, Hmm. but then also at the, where I get the bulk foods, there's like farro and kamut and, but barley and rye. And it turns out, I used to think, you know, I used to wonder how they made bread, like how they came up with it, because there's so many steps. But then, (laughs) but I figured, you know, over thousands of years, people figured out, but I didn't realize how they got into grains in the first place. And I didn't realize you can just soak them in water. And now I'm having cereal to me now means put, like right now I got um, barley and maybe I forget what I'm soaking right now, but tomorrow morning I'll have those. And I thought the supermarket aisle with um, the boxes of cereals, that was normal. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't get the sugar ones, but we would get whatever ones we, we could get. And that was to me as if that was a natural thing. Like nature produces boxes of, of I don't know, shredded wheat. And no, that was, now I look at that as like the whole aisle is bizarre. How did we let that happen? And it's so much cheaper to get the whole grains and just put them in water. I mean, they're like, it's a, a dollar a pound, two dollars a pound, and way healthier. And it tastes really interesting. It's got this chewiness that I didn't get before. So I grew up in the 70s. I think it was just normal to me to go to the supermarket and we would get like the normal things. It, it so and my parents don't get it now. They really um uh they're not flying to them. It's, you know, one of the subjects, it's difficult when it comes up, um, when I visit and everyone, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different family members who have all the different issues between allergies and between different eating habits and different religious things. And so mine is, you know, people accommodate it, but sometimes it's a challenge. Yeah, sure. Cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get the package stuff. And anyway, I don't know if that was too long of an answer. No, I, I mean, everything you've described feels very familiar to me. Um, I grew up in the 90s, 2000s, and my parents were into alternative medicine and into natural foods. And so I feel like my palate is just adjusted to all kinds of um, what most people would think of as like strange foods. I mean, my wife sometimes laughs at me like how adjusted I am to like taking herbs and different natural supplements and things like that. Cause it's just, you know, what you grow up around is then 
what's normal. Um, but of course, as a result, when I was growing up, uh, every time I could like go to a friend's house and eat some sugary cereal, like you're saying, or yeah. some processed thing, I was like, Oh my God, this is fucking delicious. Um, and it would blow my mind. Um, but you know, now I, I guess I have maybe a little less predisposition to be like addicted to those little things. Although, you know, I have <laughs> certain things that I am addicted to, like, uh, vanilla ice cream or the occasional Gatorade after I've been exercising or something that are, um, I probably picked up as a kid and have kept for most of my life. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how, how that probably has allowed, has been like a, a protective mechanism. You know, I've had the privilege of having this kind of protective mechanism where I'm like not addicted to uh, processed foods or to candy or um, these other things. I know that when I was little, I remember in college when, be on, when the team would be on road trips, like the choice between McDonald's and Wendy's was significant at that time. Like there was a big difference in those. Right, right, right. Whereas a Fuji apple. I mean, it was an illusion, right? But we all had like different associations for the different uh, fast food chains at that point. They seemed like variety between the right. Taco Bell was very, very different than McDonald's. Totally. And whereas a Fuji apple compared to a, um, a Red Delicious would be, I wouldn't notice that they're just apples. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's the other way around. To me, um, Burger King and uh, Panera are basically identical. Although I think to the average American, they're like way different, wildly different because they're marketed differently. Mm -hmm. And to me, uh, an apple, a local apple compared to one that was shipped in from far away, there's a big difference between those. Or, and I, I, there's the nuance and complexity is much more interesting to me now than big, um, you know, uh, what's the, the term that they use? Um, I mean, it's addiction, but it's um, bliss point when that they try to get the just the perfect mix of, you know, somehow ketchup has it. And uh, I never heard that before. Yeah, bliss point is like their, um, Michael Moss taught it to me, he, who wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat and Hooked. Right. And yeah, and, and occasionally I hear things that, that make the switch happen. When I read once that, humans for almost all of human history up until agriculture. So homo sapiens have been homo sapiens for something like 300,000 years. And we drank mother's milk until we were weaned. Mm -hmm. And then we had water mm -hmm. ever since hearing that I, I knew that this would happen. Something inside me starts water tastes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And other things just seem revolting to me. Yeah. That's something I wanted to mention before is that it's not just that I've lose the taste for some things, but many things, trigger disgust it, it be, I, I think it begins with a, a moral disgust but then it turns into an actual physical disgust and maybe it goes the other way as well so with the with the um uh hydrogenated oils that began with a, a disgust of business practice like how can they do this to me right and then it seemed didn't turn into a flavor disgust that i i wouldn't want that in my mouth whereas the cheese went the other way maybe no i forget anyway when things start getting disgusting, it's very easy not to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had a, a lot of experiences like that thus far, but I, ha I guess I haven't really pushed myself to explore um, a lot of the foods that I'm eating or where they might be coming from. I mean, I think another privilege of mine living in a place like Northern Colorado is a lot of um, 
there's a lot of infrastructure here for like good local food. Although there's also a lot of infrastructure for uh, eating processed food. But um, again, it's like these, probably these habits from my childhood where I just end up like steering um, thoughtlessly to the organics aisle in a King Supers because it's what I've always done. It's weird how you describe it's a privilege to have fresh vegetables around when it used to be all markets were farmers markets. Mm-hmm. There was no option. It was, and now it's flipped somehow. I mean, we've created a system in which it's flipped. Now I want to get back to Uruguay. Sure, sure. Because there was we've gone far afield, but you talked to the president, and I want to read another paragraph about his description of the West. But first, I have to describe him because he's he sounds like an amazing character. So you wrote in 2009, Uruguay elected an unlikely leader, Jose Mujica. I hope I said it right. Mm-hmm. A former baker's a former baker's assistant and flour merchant. Okay, that sounds interesting. Mujica had become notorious as one of the guerrilla leaders of the Tupamaros. Tupamaros. Yep. With whom he staged at least one bank robbery before being shot and arrested in 1970. He spent 13 years in prison, escaping at least twice, suffering torture and long stretches in solitary confinement at the bottom of the well. Of a, at the bottom of a well. So we have to come back to that. <laughs> But I want to read what he, his description of the West. Mm-hmm. So skipping ahead, Mujica harbored another deeper belief too. For years, he had been arguing that the, quote, blind obsession with, to achieve growth with consumption, end quote, was the real cause of the linked energy and ecological crises. In speeches, he pushed his people to reject materialism and embrace Uruguay's traditions of simplicity and humility. Quote, the culture of the West is a lie, he told me, and continue the quote, the engine is accumulation, but we can't pretend that the whole world can embrace it. We would need two or three more planets, end quote. He shared his own experience in solitary confinement and how years without books or conversation drew him closer to the fundamentals of being, nature, love, family. And I'll quote him again. I learned to give, I learned to give value to little things in life. I kept some frogs as pets in prison and bathed them with my drinking water. The true revolution is a different culture, learning to live with less waste, and more time to enjoy freedom. Hmm. So especially leading with free, like that, you, so much of what you wrote, I, I've not heard from people who are ardent environmentalists. Yeah. And it resonated, like freedom, simplicity, love, you know, keeping pets, like the frogs of like just simple stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. Mujica was a fascinating man to talk to and a, and a fascinating leader. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, one of them, obviously that he's a great talker and a great storyteller and um, has this incredible background of being a guerrilla leader, being imprisoned and being tortured for most of the military dictatorship in the country. Um, and then reemerging as a politician Um, and I think I was most struck by how his, this philosophy of simplicity, this philosophy of social welfare, um, that it didn't necessarily have anything to do with climate change. Um, even something like simplicity you know, in America, it has certain associations maybe with 
conservative political values or even with like, you know, uh, Patagonia type environmental PR campaigns. But to him was really just the freedom to enjoy life on its own terms. Um, The freedom from having to work too much without receiving um, adequate pay. Um, It was like the right to healthcare, um, the right to being able to spend time with your friends and family. Um, And he outlined these things in a speech that I found pretty interesting to the UN. I think this was early in his presidency. And he he echoed a lot of what he said to me about the the culture of the West being a lie, and that um, this this model of consumption and accumulation was a lie. Because of course, you know, if every Indian and every Chinese person in the world aspired to live like the typical German or the typical American, um, the ecological crisis, the climate crisis, would be much, much worse. And so that, that informed this philosophy, this um, talking point that he went back to again and again of kind of embracing simpler things in life in um, wanting Uruguayan society to achieve a certain kind of comfort and like stability, but not necessarily pushing beyond that into gross accumulation or excess. You know, I hadn't heard a lot of world leaders say things like that before. Um, And I think there's a lot of criticism of Mujica. I mean, maybe as much as there is for any politician, some that maybe feel like this, it's naive to even be talking about these things. But I also found a lot of people in the country who maybe regardless of their political agreement with him, at least found him a kind of inspiring figure and at least seemed to agree with some of the basic uh, beliefs he had about a good life. So that's what I found the most fascinating with him and also how he came to support a green energy revolution Again, not exactly as a climate activist, but as someone who is interested in his country's sovereignty and his country's stability, as a country that had formerly gotten a lot of its energy from foreign oil, that had wreaked a lot of havoc on their economy because their economy was essentially uh, linked to commodity prices and linked to global affairs that Uruguay had little or nothing to do with. Um, And I think that was his main motivation and the motivation of his predecessor, um, Vasquez, to push a green revolution. And at the same time, doing something that, that I found really surprising, which was though his political party uh, the broad front had um, a majority at the time and, and ended up being in power for close for, I think, 15 years. Um, he still sought the support of the opposition for this energy revolution and for this energy policy, because he felt like if, if we're going to make a policy that stretches forward 25 or 30 years, we need to ensure that, you know, uh, the next party in charge is going to continue the progress and not just reverse it because of 
special interests or a change, uh, a change of mind or whatever it might be. So yeah, the, I mean, Mujica is a, a fascinating character and, and one that I hadn't had a lot of familiarity with before starting to report this story. So it was um, pretty interesting to dig into his background and to his um, person and then obviously getting to interview him himself. It sounds like he's, his way of living, there's a genuineness and authenticity to it that seems to mm. be propagating to his, his citizenry. Do I read that right? Yeah, and, and to your to your earlier points about role models, um, uh, a few different people said this to me and they were like, you know, whether you agree with him or not, he, he's, he's kind of walking the walk, right? Like he is preaching these values to the people, but he's also living that way, right? He's continuing to live on the farm that he had lived on for a long time. He's continuing to drive his old beat up VW, uh, to work. He's continuing to ride his bike a lot. He's, um, you know, he's practicing what he's, what he's preaching. And I think that made him a little harder to write off and probably also helped some of his philosophies and, and thinking, you know, seep into, um, a little bit of the collective consciousness there. I mean, I think there's some question as to like, was Mujica channeling a lot of the philosophy national character that kind of already exists in Uruguay or is he you know really um offering his his own perspective and I, th I think it's a little bit of both I mean I think he's pushing forward a lot of the values that earlier leaders had in Uruguay of, of putting equality and social welfare at the forefront of the country um and then he's kind of putting his own uh philosophical angle on them. I mean, when we were talking, he talked a lot about um, uh, different philosophers, different Greek philosophers, um, which is kind of fascinating when you're talking to a politician, politician for them to evoke um, Seneca, for example. I don't know, is Seneca Greek or Roman? I, I'm not. I'm, I think Roman. Yeah. Yeah. Roman. I'm not very good at that stuff. How about his effect on you? Uh, how have mm. things changed as a result of meeting him, as a result of talking to the Uruguayans and seeing the culture at large? I, I guess it hasn't been that long, but has it propagated into you? Yeah, well, I was, uh, a couple of people have asked me versions of this question, and I don't know. Um, I think I certainly, I, I think anytime you report on something around the world, you come back uh, slightly altered by it or um, thinking about it, dwelling on certain facets of it. And in the case of this story, yeah, I think it's, it's asked, it's kind of forced me to ask a lot of questions about um, my consumption habits, but, but I guess it has forced me to ask more questions, I guess, about just my conception of like freedom and happiness. I mean, that sounds a little corny, but um, you know, I think Mujica's philosophy at its core is like asking us to interrogate these things, not just to like avoid uh, reinforcing the consumerist economic model and the, the greed of corporations, but he's also kind of asking people like, well, what do you value? What do you want to spend your time on? Um, where do you want to place your effort? Um, and I think those are the underlying questions that I feel like 
you know, maybe we've been talking a little bit about and that you've discovered through your own experiment, um, that, you know, as you start to cut out these other things in your life, it forces your attention onto other things that matter. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a, uh, a class yesterday at a university and they asked me a very similar question. And I, and I had a kind of funny answer, which was that, um, it made one thing it made me miss was like seeing, seeing like the social fabric of a place on the street, which is something that I think I took for granted or was often annoying or a frustration, you know, when you're in New York, I mean, like the sirens are blaring, like we've had happen a couple of times while we're recording and people are out on the street and people are hanging out on the street. And, um, I saw that a lot in Montevideo of people just hanging out that way, like gathering on a street corner, sitting in chairs, drinking mate, whatever it is. And, um, that's a thing I miss in, in like my current lifestyle in Colorado, um, is just like the ease of hanging out with people, not with any kind of particular plan to like drive around or go to a restaurant or go to a movie or like go to top golf or whatever it is, but like just stand around on your street corner and talk and catch up and hang out. And um, I think that's something that's, it seemed pretty important to people there, like just gathering like a community and walking along La Rambla along the river. And, um, and, you know, maybe that's just like, a more city oriented activity than it is in a, in a town like mine. But, you know, it's funny, even here living in a small town, it's like when my wife and I want to go do something, like, what do we want to go do? We want to like park in our little downtown and like walk around, see people, check things out, hang out, catch up with people. So uh, I don't know. I came home with a real desire for that um, as maybe funny as that sounds. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.